0: I don't know that it's necessary for me to make the case that there is something wrong in our world. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have to prove that to you. I mean, if you ever watch the news, no matter which angle you get your news from, it's clear that something wrong. And, and in, in our society today, it's commonplace to vilify, to, to render demonic anyone who disagrees with you. Right, The opposition is the devil, which means that everybody is making the case that something is wrong, even if what they think the wrong thing is, is anybody on the opposite side of the political spectrum from them. But if you strip away all the words of politicians and pundits and news anchors and, and the writers of editorial opinions, um, I wonder when you sift all that other stuff out, What is it that you think is wrong with the world? There's a difference between things that are generally wrong and the things that are wrong that strike home here in you. I mean, we're inundated with things that are wrong. It's easy to be overwhelmed with everything that's wrong. But there are some particular things that are wrong that you are especially sensitive to. It may be that at some point in your life you were the victim of violence or abuse. News stories that involve that issue, stories of trafficking or domestic abuse or, or other things I won't mention, these will catch your attention and will stay with you. If you are the mother of black sons, stories of racial injustice will catch and hold your attention. If you've experienced homelessness during your lifetime, or if you are acquainted with mental illness, either in your life or in the life of a loved one, stories that involve these will come close to you and will draw you in. And so I ask, when it comes to the pain in the world, what Grips your heart. Nehemiah, his name means the Lord has comforted, was gripped by news he received in the very beginning of Nehemiah 1. This is what it says there. While I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, which is sort of a nickname for Hananiah, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied to me, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. If the gates have been destroyed by fire, that's equivalent to saying there's no security there. They are completely susceptible to any bandit, any mercenary, anybody that would come in and take what they have. They are at utter risk. They are exposed to the elements. They are in great distress. I think it's true that in every every age, the solution to social ills societal injustice tragedy from natural disasters and and tragedies that result from human greed and evil the remedy for all of of those things waits until somebody takes notice someone has to see what's going on before anybody steps up to do anything about those things And usually, the person who can step up is someone who has some level of means, some influence, some position. Not always. Sometimes all that's really needed is someone with the courage to stand up and speak out loud. But often, the people who can make a difference are people who see and then have something to offer towards the solution. And in this particular case, we're told by Nehemiah that he is cupbearer to the king. So he's the one who tastes the king's beverage before the king does, just in case it's poisoned. Okay, It's a position of great trust. The king relies on his cupbearer. I don't know how much job security there is in the cupbearer's position, and I'm not sure that I'd want that position of trust, knowing I could be dead after every sip. But still, it's a significant position of trust. And and Nehemiah, in this position of trust, hears this news from Hanani, and then what does he do? What's his response to this difficulty that grips his heart? Well, he prays, and he fasts and i'm wondering about the content of his prayer i mean he's praying lord what should be done what what can be done what what will you do what must i do how will i do what i must do who will help me what will i need he's thinking he's meditating he's praying he's fasting in order to keep his attention on the problem and to keep the problem before him. He's immersing himself before the Father in this situation. What is it that, that grips your heart? And how do you respond to that? When I ask that question, I think about a couple I knew in Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, the princes. Bob was a retired executive from the auto industry. Uh, by the time I knew him, he was well into this project. And he was probably in the 70s uh, at the time. But if you, if you were around Detroit any time in the 70s and 80s, you know that it was a period of great racial difficulty. Stress, violence, riots, those types of things. Nancy and I actually lived in Michigan twice during our ministry. And The first time was in the very early 80s, and we would hear stories from our parishioners who would drive to Detroit and back to work, and the the fear was palpable in them because you just didn't know what was going to happen any day in Detroit. The the racial injustice and violence was very significant, and the tension level was high. And it was during that period that Bob, who lived in Plymouth at that time and who we didn't know yet, uh, was gripped by the inequity fostered on the people who lived in the inner city of of Detroit. He lived between Detroit and Plymouth, where he went to church in the middle, and, and that church in Plymouth was a very white church. But his heart was gripped, especially for the children of the inner city, and he believed that something had to be done. Now, he's not a young guy, nor is his wife a young guy. He's very, very white, and the inner city of Detroit is very, very black. And, and he he was just gripped by this. And so he began to pray and ask, Lord, what can be done? What can be done? And, and in his mind, he believed he heard God say, um, someone's got to come alongside these kids and help them. Someone's got to help them. And a primary way is to help them succeed in school. If we can keep them in school, we can, we can make a difference. And he began to collect resources So he talked to his friend, he talked to some of his old corporate contacts from when he used to be an executive in the auto industry, and he began to pull resources together. And eventually they rented a little storefront in downtown Detroit. Uh, Rentals were very inexpensive at the time. He found a storefront and he began to set up a compassionate ministry there. It started with delivering some food, mostly non perishables that he could collect and some clothes, and and just being there in the evening, being physically present. And and they began to gather volunteers, and they'd show up during the week at Detroit Impact. That was the name of what he did. It became clear that education was a primary piece of this, and so he began to solicit educational support. Very early, wrote Bill Gates and got computers that donated to Detroit Impact so we could increase the computer literacy of those kids, get them the technology they needed. And I can remember that by the time that Nancy and I were there in the 90s, they were having their first student get accepted to college. And the celebration that there was because these two little old white people had laid this problem that gripped their heart before the father. And they believed, they fervently believed that this was not their idea, but that this was God's idea. And that He was going to provision and prosper this ministry. And God did. And, and I've got to confess, the two of them were a little bit annoying about it. This wasn't like, like, um, you know, do you think you could help me sometime? It's like, you have more money than you need and we could use some money. How about you give us money now? I mean, it, it was just that in your face. And I, and I sort of think the boldness was a part of their confidence that this was God's plan. And Bob was never the most diplomatic guy anyway, but he was available and, and, he, and he laid this thing that gripped his heart before the Father. And and God did amazing things through that ministry. That ministry changed that church. So Nehemiah prays and he fasts and he takes this problem before the Father. This is what he says. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 5, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinance that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. I love it that he's bold to remind God what he said. Isn't that great? Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses if you are unfaithful i will scatter you among the people but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them though your outcasts are under the farthest skies i will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which i have chosen to establish my name they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Notice the humility and the confession that begin this prayer. Just like Daniel's prayer. Again, this is a sketch of a prayer that was repeated many times. And I don't believe the plan that Nehemiah has comes into his mind all at once the first time he prays. Because you hear in the words of this passage, this is my prayer night and day, right? This is, this is, I've been repeating this. I've been living this prayer. I've been bringing this to you again and again. I've been waiting to hear from you, Lord. This has gripped my heart. But in time, he begins to realize what his options are, what he can do, what influence he can bring to bear towards what God's plan is. And he remembers he was the cupbearer to the king. And he begins to believe that that there's something he can do, there's a next step, and that he has been placed in a very particular position of influence, perhaps just for this particular time. And And so he prays, Give your servant, give me, Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, success and favor in the eyes of that king today when I go and talk to him. His prayer is, help me out here, Lord. I think this is what you want me to do. Now, he has, he has reason to pray this way. I mean, fear of the king makes sense, Okay? The passage goes on to tell us that he's never appeared in front of the king before with the sad countenance. His job is to be upbeat, encouraging, confident, and essentially support the king, but be a wallflower and stay out of the way, right? Don't bring attention to yourself. Stay out of the way. Don't distract from the king's prominence. So there's a reason for fear if he's going to step out of that role. He's not sure how far the favor of the king will go. There's a chance that his request will raise the anger of the king. And if that happens, he could very well lose his position, his influence, his head. We don't know. But There is also the corresponding fear of doing nothing of squandering this opportunity, of being irresponsible, a fear of misusing the blessing of God for personal comfort rather than for the good of others, of just being self-satisfied about being in the position of influence, but never using that influence according to the direction of God. You can almost hear the central message of the book of Esther behind this, can't you? Who knows, Esther, it may be that you are in this place and position for such a time as this, Mordecai says to Esther. And Nehemiah has to be thinking, it may just be that he is in this position of influence for a time such as this, and that God has ordained this, and and God has put him in a position of influence and given him the means to make a difference just for this occasion. And it makes me want to know What special blessings have you received? What influence do you have? What platform to speak do you enjoy? Whose ear do you have? What friends might help your cause? Are you willing to call in those favors? Use your influence? Risk your position in order to do something about what is wrong. I speak about this, and you know, here I sit looking at Dave over here. And do you know the pain that grips his heart? It takes you about 14 seconds to figure that out. He's gripped by addictions that limit and keep God's children in bondage. And he lives and breathes for the freedom that Christ can bring to people as Christ liberates folks from addictions. And he'll call in any old stinking favor he has to move that agenda forward. He will, if necessary, annoy you (laughs) if it is to follow what he believes God's passionate plan is that is based on God's passionate love for his children and the freedom he desires for them. It's good to have a role model nearby to show us how this is supposed to work. But if something has gripped your heart, if there's a pain that your being resonates with when you hear it, this solution always starts with seeing and listening and hearing. Unless we're willing to see and understand what is actually wrong, we will never wait before God long enough to figure out what his plan is and what we should do. It's his plan that we need. It's not our solution to what we think the pain in the world is or what grips us. It's his plan and what he wants to do. When I, when I begin to think like this, my mind races back to Isaiah 50, to that suffering servant hymn where uh, Isaiah says, morning by morning he awakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. That, that phrase, open my ear, literally means he dug out my ear canal so that I could hear. And if we're going to know the plan of God, we're going to need him to anoint our ears, to open our ears, so we can actually hear what his instructions are. We're going to have to linger long enough in prayer, in meditation, perhaps in mourning, to hear what God has to say so that he will instruct us. And then we listen. We have to take what is wrong before God and place it before Him and listen. And so I wonder this morning, what has gripped your heart? What have you placed before the Father's throne? Just not once casually, but what do you bring again and again and again before the Father? You know, 60% of the children at Waddell Elementary School are on the government-subsidized school lunch program. You can read into that statistic very easily that there are kids going to sleep hungry in our town because of their income levels. Trafficking is occurring in our town. There is domestic violence in our town. COVID-19 is putting families and students at risk in our town. What, What will you lay before the Lord? How will you pray in the face of the brokenness of our day? My fear in preaching this sermon is that you will hear, you will listen, you will begin to sense what God is having to do And then you'll call my office and say, Pastor, what's the church going to do about the pain that I feel? That's not the example that's here. The example here is, I'm feeling this pain and I'm taking it to the Father and I'm listening, waiting, trying to hear His plan. Not the plan that Whitney can come up with, or Light can come up with, or the church board can come up with to resolve your pain. It's it's the Father's plan. And then the Father will talk to us about how we gather resources, and how we gather support, and how we approach our friends. And at some point along the process, it will probably involve your friends at church. But... If we only ever wait for what the church can do, we'll be waiting far too long to get in the game. It starts with us before the Father. It starts with us having the courage to sense the pain that's gripping our hearts and laying it before him and listening. One of the reasons I love our community prayer events that happen on the first Sunday night of each month, one that will happen here next Sunday night at 6 p.m., is that it is a prime time when we together, corporately as the Church of Jesus Christ, lay before God the pain of the world, the dysfunction of the world, the brokenness of the world. We do that together on the first Sunday night of every month. And that's an important part of this process, to name together what's wrong and to listen to God for what He might birth into our lives so that He can use us to bring healing to His world. You understand, that is what the coming of the kingdom of God is all about. God is trying to redeem everything. He's trying to heal all that is broken. He's trying to renew and restore his people. That's why Jesus has come, to make it possible for humanity to be reconciled to God. And he wants to use us in this grand adventure to redeem all that can be redeemed. And we will be agents of his redemption when we understand the suffering of his heart for the brokenness of the world and we enter into that brokenness with him and we listen for his plan of redemption in our time and in our place, there's an old hymn that includes the words, "The hymn is a charge to keep I have one of the, I think it's the third verse that says, "To serve the present age, my calling to fulfil, oh may it, Lord, oh may it now." Engage all my power to do the Master's will. This is our day. This is our time. The brokenness of the world is ours to embrace, and especially those things that grip our hearts. Will we take them before the Lord the way Nehemiah did? Will we wait for God's plan? Will we listen to what he has to say? Heavenly Father, speak into our hearts, show us your way, give us eyes to see the brokenness that is around us that you would have us address. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen. And now may the God who loves the world equip you with everything you need to achieve his purpose so that what is broken may be redeemed. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.